Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the 2019 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, The Importance of Precision in Agronomic Data, is brought to you by Montag Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Montag Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist. Offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems as well as auto steer carts, Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. That's M-O-N-T-A-G-M-F-G.com. Having been an officer at Sprint, AT&T, and other communications companies, Ron LeMay, now with Main Street Data, was intimately involved in early forays into data analytics and benchmarking in the 1980s. Having gotten involved in the tech side of agriculture in the early 2000s, he sees a lot of parallels between those early days of connectivity and communications and the challenges of integrating agriculture into the Internet of Things. In this podcast, Ron talks about the importance of precision in agronomic data collection, highlighting the scope of the dataset collected by FarmLink, which was recently acquired by Main Street Data. He explains that their data compares 56 variables and farming practices that affect yield. Based on 1.3 billion field samples in 150 square foot increments and normalized for weather, it allows them to understand causes and correlations in farm management practices that can be elusive when looked at through a less precise lens. As Ron says, without the facts, you can't do the analysis. To explain in detail, here's Ron LeMay from Main Street Data. Just a little background on me to contextualize this. My career has been more in communications than anything. I retired as the president of Sprint Corporation in 2003. Had been an officer at AT&T Southwestern Bell and ran Japan Telecom for a time, created the largest global telecommunications alliance in the world with France Telecom and Deutsche Telecom. But after I retired, I went into private equity and venture capital and have since had an investment company in Kansas City called Open Air Equity Partners. Our concentration uh, is in Internet of Things and data analytics. And so we're interested in connecting things when it gives us access to data that in turn permits us to assess the data, manipulate the data, uh, prepare platforms, algorithms, models, etc., that can transform industries. And so we're one of the leaders in connected car, connected home, connected aircraft. So we're involved in connecting lots of stuff. In 2000, uh, I made the first investment in this enterprise, and it was in ag. It was in a company called Machinery Link that some of you may be familiar with. Machinery Link was a early form of sharing economy for combines. So we leased or bought combines and released them to farmers in an effort to try to address the asset utilization issue in farming, which is as bad now as it was then, by the way. It's an unsustainable level of capital uh, requirement in agriculture. Uh, it's, it's the worst in the world by orders of magnitude. Not the subject for today, but just a comment on the history of this. 
So we converted Machinery Link into a data collection enterprise in 2009 and began to collect data. So as we would lease combines to farmers, a part of the deal was you're getting a great deal on the combine lease, we're gonna collect data. So we've collected data, aggregated that data, and that data is now owned by Main Street Data. It was owned by FarmLink, but Main Street Data acquired all the assets of FarmLink about a year and four or five months ago. I don't claim at all to be an ag expert, although I kind of feel like the, the farmer's slogan you see on TV all the time, you know, I know a thing or two because I've seen a thing or two. And over the last almost 20 years, I've seen a lot looking through a prism other than the prism most farmers or anyone else in the ag ecosystem would look through. I'm looking at it through a capital efficiency, process improvement, unit cost reduction, re-engineering. I'm thinking about it and looking at it and challenging everything I see because I think that's the way you get better. It's the way you improve, it's the way you bring about positive transformational change. So if you were to see me in a field giving advice, I'd like for you to call my wife immediately because I don't mean dementia has set in because I've got no business doing that whatsoever. So I see a lot of parallels between what's going on in ag now and what I've seen since the early 80s in other industries. I was the vice president controller of AT&T in 1983 and in charge of competitive analysis when the Bell system was being broken up. That was the time of really dramatic transformational change where the Bell system, for those of you who are old enough to remember there was a Bell system, was really in a slow growth, slow change kind of mode because it hadn't been introduced to the fires of competitiveness that it was about to be introduced into. So my job was to prepare the company for that by doing all kinds of data analytics and benchmarking. Benchmarking has been a common term in financial services, in manufacturing, communications, a whole bunch of markets. It's a very recent term in, uh, in agriculture. When we started using the term benchmarking with FarmLink in 2010-11, no one I could find was using that term. Part of the reason is data hadn't been aggregated in a fashion that facilitated benchmarking. So some of it was simply a product of the fragmentation of the industry. Some of it was a product of just not having had to think about things in the kind of competitive context that other industries have had to think about it. So we think about these, these uh, times, a lot of people characterize them as formative, transformational, um, disruptive is a term you see a lot. You know, a cruder, but I think clear characterization of this is called WTSHTF. So if, if I had young colleagues in here, their, their answer to that probably would be WTF, which I won't pronounce for you, but I see smiles at that anyway. WTSNTF among younger people is when the shit hits the fan. And that's a way, I think an accurate way of characterizing what's happening in agriculture generally now. We are in a time of accelerating fundamental change and it's gonna require those who intend to succeed in this market to adopt different approaches and to change at a more rapid rate. You know, I say if you're in the 
WTS, HTF mode, you want to be a pitcher, not a catcher. You want to be on the offense, not on the defense. That, among other things, requires speed and precision. And one of the things I've seen in agriculture, when I view it through the lens of other industries, is it's an extremely imprecise industry compared to others. The precision is increasing, but it's still relatively imprecise. And I'll go through some of the examples of that as we go through here. So my encouragement to you is to look at this as an opportunity. Change creates enormous opportunity. It creates risk for sure, but if you're aggressive and you're willing to outlearn your competitor or your potential competitor, creates a lot more opportunity than it does risk, but only if you move at the speed of competition and only if you dedicate yourself to outlearning your competitor. George Bernard Shaw ha has a quote that I've always enjoyed. I encourage people to be unreasonable, which sounds crazy in the first instance, but his quote is, all progress belongs to and depends on the unreasonable man. The reasonable man accommodates himself to the circumstances in which he finds himself. The unreasonable man insists on the circumstances accommodating him. Therefore, all change depends on the unreasonable man. This is a time when to be on the offense and to be a winner, ultimately, one needs to think of themselves as that unreasonable man. It's a pretty simple formulation, but what I've seen is that in all industries at this stage, and I see it very clearly in agriculture, is some of these things get missed. So I always say slow down so you can go fast. You know, get in touch with the fundamentals. Think about what's going on at a fundamental level because that'll lay a foundation for you to go a lot faster and to act a lot more intelligently. Facts are elusive in the experience I've had in ag. The ratio of opinions to facts is infinite. The ratio of intuition to facts is very high. The ratio of facts asserted by others to be facts that have not been validated is enormously high. So my encouragement to you is, if you wanna be a winner in the future, you really have to focus on the facts and make sure you know the facts. You know, we've had experience re recently with really outstanding farmers who are collecting all kinds of data and claim to be doing all kinds of wonderful things with it. As it turns out, they really don't know what's being done with it. It's going off to some organization somewhere, some agronomist in some cases going off to a supplier. What they're getting is representations back. They're not getting facts, they're getting people making recommendations and stating opinions based upon some set of facts, allegedly, that may or may not be facts. And so, you know, one of my messages to you is you need to engage, you really need to understand the facts. We've gotten very defensive about our data farmers have. I think a disservice to a lot of farmers because the ability to make really good decisions depends on your ability to aggregate your data with other data not in some irresponsible fashion, but in a fashion that gives you a big enough picture that you can make intelligent decisions because you know the facts. You're not relying on your seed company to tell you the facts or your chemical company or someone else. Because without the facts, you can't do the analysis. The analysis is complicated enough, but you don't get even get to the starting line if you don't have the, the facts to start with. Then obviously you have to make sound judgments in anything. 
So just taking this to agriculture for a moment, we have to have precision agronomic data. And I'm going to come to examples of that in a moment because I think that's a real deficiency. We have to have precision marketing data too. Uh, farmers are growing stuff, spending money to grow stuff, spending money on land inputs, et cetera, et cetera. But then you have to sell your product. And there is at least as much money left on the table based on our analysis in the selling process as in the agronomic process. So I think there's a disproportionate concentration on improving agronomy, which needs to be done, as opposed to marketing. I'm gonna to come to that in a moment. We've done studies to indicate how well farmers may or may not be doing in marketing their grain. And there's a whole bunch of initiatives occurring now with large grain traders proposing deals to farmers. There's all kinds of disruption, disintermediation going on here. Makes it critically important that you focus very specifically on the facts as they exist in agronomy, the facts as they exist in marketing of the data. You need advanced data analytics. It's just it's simply, I say to people, when I'm talking about marketing, why would we think a farmer would be capable of doing all the things you need to do to be successful as a farmer and be a grain trader equal to some Chicago grain trader? It's I couldn't do that. It's completely unrealistic. But dealing with that reality and understanding what you need to do to compensate for that is critically important. A lot of these farms, a lot of your farms, I'm sure, I don't know, I don't know enough about your farms exactly. If you were a small, medium business in Kansas City, where I live, you'd have maybe a COO, CFO, chief marketing officer. You'd have all kinds of people committed to you, not people who may be in conflict with you, working for you to make the best decision. I think that's the right model to think about here. You may not be able to do that with employees, but you need to do it with unconflicted subject matter experts who can help you make the right decisions. You know, what do I see? And I'm seeing a piece of this, right? I'm not, seeing, I'm not seeing what's going on in developing new hybrids and that sort of thing. So I'm seeing harvest data just to contextualize you. I'm seeing at levels of granularity. I'm seeing it across 26 states. I'm able to compare production. I can draw inferences about where things are going, hyper-local forecasting but it's in the context of yield and marketing of the grain. It's not in other contexts. The data are unreliable. I can say that unqualifiedly, and it's a big problem. I'll explain to you how we produce reliable data because we have 1.3 billion samples of data now across 26 states. But as I described to you what we did to achieve that reliability and that quality, I think you'll see the problem. In 2010, we didn't have a clue how to do this when we started collecting data. And so we did it essentially the way everyone does it today. You know, some things have changed, there's streaming now that wasn't, didn't exist then. But the fundamental steps taken at the point of collection really haven't changed fundamentally generally. I'm, I don't wanna paint with too broad a brush because some farmers really do it right. I and mean, I've known some of those farmers but if you don't really do it right, and generally it's really not done right, you get the same result we got in 2010. We threw away two thirds of the data we collected. It was somewhere between useful and harm, useless and harmful. There's a huge amount of that data today. We've been collecting samples of data in the last several months just to 
kind of make sure we know what's going on, have not found a data set yet that we would utilize in making decisions. That's the context in which I've learned that some of these really good, well-intentioned farmers sending this stuff off to someone who's not telling them that this is not really good data. You know, there's a big missing piece in the middle of the field. There's a lot of Photoshopping going on. There's a lot of, of internet photographic kinds of applications that are more art than science, and certainly not data science. So if I were you, I'd be really alert to that and make sure that what you're doing is producing data that is actionable in quality. And if someone else is asking you to rely on it, making sure that it's actionable in quality. So if you have bad data, you can't have good analysis. You know, I call that data alchemy. You know, it's like trying to turn lead into gold. You know, I hear people say, well, if you got enough data, it doesn't make any difference. That's fundamentally wrong for this purpose, for sure. If you're trying to actually farm at a precise level or develop a thoughtful, disciplined trading plan, you need specific facts and really good analysis. Then judgments are obviously going to be affected by that. If you have bad facts and that limits your ability to do analytics, you're not going to produce good judgments. So here are some of the things that I see that we have identified and targeted to correct. So, and you ought to ask yourself the question, do you really know how you're doing when you normalize for weather? You know, what I've seen over and over again is farmers having a great harvest and thinking they did great when it was all weather. Actually, agronomically, they went backwards. We've demonstrated it to them. I've also seen the opposite, where they've had a really disappointing harvest and we've dug in and proved to them what they did really worked. They're on the right track. Weather simply more than neutralized that. So if you don't know how you're doing, I don't mean guessing. I don't mean saying, well, 12 was a really bad year, that sort of anecdotal stuff. I mean, in a disciplined way, understanding whether you're fundamentally on the right improvement track by taking weather out of the equation year after year. You should know how you're doing compared to others. This is going to be an increasingly competitive enterprise. You know, I hear people talk about competition. Now you're seeing, the, you're seeing the tip of the iceberg, frankly. There are contexts in which competition occurs. We all have experienced that. You're gonna see that increase in, in time sensitivity and increase in number of competitors in a really, probably to a lot of you, a surprising sort of way. So knowing how you're doing compared to whoever your peers are, and what we do is we, we neutralize growing conditions. So we identify 56 elements that along with farming practices determine yield. Those, then we compare production in one context to another context to determine comparability of growing and we benchmark. And so we can benchmark under comparable growing conditions fifth percentile to the 95th percentile. That's the way you need to be thinking about things. When your lease, if you're a lessee and your lease is up, you need to assume your lessor is gonna benchmark you. You're gonna to try to figure out, are you the best lessee for them? Or maybe you're an aggressive lessee and you want to get someone else's lease. So you wanna prove that you're an 80th percentile farmer where he's leasing to a 50th percentile farmer. That's the kind of environment we're gonna see and why it's so important you know how you stand compared to others. Need to understand that an opportunity zone, I coined this term with people call it management zones. We actually collected our data at 150 square feet. So we have 1.3 billion, 150 square feet 
samples where we have the 56 naturally occurring variables and the yield that was produced there. That's what permits us to do this elaborate correlation to understand what causes what and to determine comparability. Farming at the field level, you know, I've seen enough to know that's just not right. That's not going to get you where you need to get you there. Fields are complicated things. Well, we've seen 100 bushels per acre variability in a 150 acre cornfield in Iowa. So what sense does it make to farm at the field level? If you have field that's completely consistent, that's fine. But the technology extrapolation zones is a term used by the University of Nebraska to mean when you have fundamental circumstances, whether it's soil type or something else change, you need to consider a change in farming practice. You only do that at the subfield level. Hyperlocal regional weather forecast. This is going to become more and more important from an agronomy perspective uh, and from a, a grain marketing perspective. Grain marketing signals at the local level. What we've seen is that farmers don't really have a tool that's like the cargo tools, for instance, to uh, understand where the grain markets are going, not based on opinion, not based on fundamentals, uh, not based on technicals, but based on actual forecasts of demand in areas. So you can translate national global fair value into local fair value and make intelligent decisions as to when and how much grain you sell. We've developed a product to do that. I'll talk about that in a few moments, but we, we actually did a study in Grundy County, Iowa, where we understood how many bushels were sold in a year, and we understood how much revenue in total was received. So we had no idea how much money each farmer got, but we could determine what the price per bushel of acre obtained was. We compare that to following this disciplined trading plan that we've developed, and it was $45 per acre. So one of the real misunderstandings here, in my view, is what's at stake in all this precision agriculture. There's an enormous amount of money at stake. I think uh, Climate Corp was purchased by Monsanto and they blew a bunch of numbers out. And I think people got skeptical to cynical about all this and thought it was just blowing smoke. Let me tell you something, there is, I, we can prove there's an enormous opportunity. Difference between a 50th percentile and a, and a 60th percentile farmer. So top 50%, top 60% in Iowa, is $20 per acre in profit. We've added the cost in. If you're a really best practices farmer, 75th percentile is more like $50. So it's probably $100 per acre opportunity in simply conforming to best practices from an agronomy and grain marketing perspective. I talked about lease optimization. Land value, a number of you are buyers, sellers of, of land. The agricultural land is really not distinguished very much between potential production. What we can do is identify underperforming land, land that's performing at some level, but has the potential to perform at a lot higher level or maybe being overfarmed and is not going to be sustainable because of the level of production. So you need to get underneath the comparable transactions that you can see and understand the potential. We'll come back to Ron in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting today's episode. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist. Offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems, as well as auto steer carts, Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. Now let's get back to Ron LeMay. So a guy named Edward Deming uh, 
guy that really cre he creates this uh, kind of foundation for the Malcolm Baldridge Award. He went to Japan, did a bunch of work years ago, then brought it back to the U.S. But this is his formulation, simple formulation, but it's a reminder that there are steps we should take and we should attribute significance to all those steps. Plan, do, check, act. There, there are weaknesses in this formulation in agriculture that we have targeted tools to. So planning, planning the experience I've had, once again, I, I don't mean to paint with too broad a brush. I know I'm talking to some excellent farmers here, and so you guys may be all over this. I know some aren't because I've seen a lot of evidence of it, so just take it as it, as it lies. But we, we, we try to fill in the plan and the check function. So we are developing facts that help farmers plan at the subfield level. So we'll give you the last five years of your benchmark performance at the subfield level. We'll tell you how you compare to others farming in comparable conditions for the last three years, this year, and then for next year. So we'll give you a five-year trend so you can see if you really are going in the right direction when you normalize for weather differences, when you normalize for soil type differences, all these 56 elements that I've been talking about. So the check function is a function where I think we're not doing an adequate job. We call it validation. We created a product called the validator to target at that, but in general, it's the going back and actually in a disciplined, scientific way, determining whether you're making the progress you wanted to make and need to make. I've used this statement over and over again. You can't manage what you don't measure. And I would translate into you can't manage what you don't measure in a quality way and that you become aware of. There's too many measurements going on that are kind of get represented at a high level to farmers that aren't uh, verifiable, aren't validatable, but need to be validated. So you're going to have to innovate going forward. And I think you guys are the probably best example in agriculture uh, of that. Uh, but you can't innovate without validation. It is speculation. If you're, if you're taking a flyer and doing things, doing it on intuition, doing it based on someone else's representation, and you're not taking the time to determine that it worked and the extent to which it worked, then you are speculating and there's no room for speculating in this context. So I've kind of reformulated what Deming did with his plan, do, check, act into validate, innovate, validate, innovate. That's what we need to be doing. Trying new things based upon good theses arising out of discipline planning into acting and then validating. It worked it, it did, or it didn't work. That's what all of industry does. That's why in our early stage venture capital uh, companies, we'll develop a, a hypothesis, then we'll develop a minimum viable product. We'll go to market with it. We'll see if the dogs eat the dog food. If they do great, we'll build on it. If they don't, we'll cut it out. But it's a way of determining whether in fact you are achieving what you're trying to achieve. We consider ourselves to be strong advocates for precision decisions. And I've used decisions rather than precision agriculture because that's devolved into an agronomic kind of characterization. My view is precision decisions apply across the whole spectrum of everything you do. And I would encourage you to think more broadly than just the context that's been assigned to precision agriculture. We're independent. We're not selling any product. We're not aligned with any uh, producer, any retail company. 
We want to be the independent validator of decisions in agriculture. We want to develop tools to help you understand that you are in fact moving in the right direction or you're not and help you understand what you need to do about that. But we're not gonna prescribe products. As a matter of principle, we don't wanna conflict ourselves the way others are conflicted by being reasonably accused of recommending a product because it's our product or telling you it worked because it was our product we sold you. That's an inherent conflict in agriculture you don't see in most other industries, by the way. It's unusual here. And, and it's kind of flabbergasting to me that we've gone so long in agriculture without having an independent validator, someone who, who isn't conflicted, who can tell you whether what you're doing works or not. We'd like to do a lot more of that, as I'll, as I'll tell you in a minute. You know, we're credible. Uh, you can judge for yourselves. So we, our, our intention is to do this right. You know, if we're not perceived as credible, we got, we got no chance. Uh, so we really, we really strive to make sure that we, we stay true to our principles, we stay focused on our objectives, and that we do things right. Everything we do in this space from a data science perspective, we back test in every way we can. We'll peer review everything we can have peer reviewed. We wanna make sure that we're doing it right and we're perceived as doing it right. We wanna be collaborative. We can't, we can't solve all these problems, obviously. We're a relatively small company in this context. And so we're very interested in working with others who have similar goals. So we're pro-partnering in every way we can partner that would advance the interest of the ecosystem. So we're working with a lot of different potential partners. So here's just a bit on our data set. So we collected data at 150 square feet. We got a data record every second. So that gave us with a typical 30 foot header and a average speed of a, of a combine, 150 square feet of data. For that data, we have the yield that came geospatially out of that 150 square feet. And we know everything there is to know about that 150 square feet that you can learn from any kind of data, which is what caused us to say there are 56 variables farmers cannot control that along with farming practices determine yield ultimately. And so what we're doing is going through machine learning, very complicated correlation processes between potential causes and yield to understand what caused what. So I think we know more at a granular level about this space than anyone else could possibly know without having done exactly what we did. Out of that, we've got 1.3 billion of those and we've developed all kinds of indices and platforms and benchmarks and models, et cetera, et cetera, that answer the questions that I've been talking about. We, you know, we, we know basically what size collections others use, accumulate, compared to Main Street data. So this gets into what I was talking about before. So unmanaged data collection is the way I would characterize most of what I see today. So th this, is, this is the typical farmer streaming data or the typical custom cutter streaming data, people collecting data on memory sticks, doing all kinds of things. But what, what they're not doing based upon what I see is what we decided we had to do under what I characterize as managed data collection. So we describe our process and you can see the contrast. So having thrown away two thirds of our data, before we would let a farmer 
harvest, we sent a tech out, spend five hours, 300 point checklist, everything on the combine, everything that could affect the accuracy of data collection, we did. We'd call in field repairs if something needed to be done to do that. We'd calibrate. We monitored the calibration over the air because we installed a wireless modem on the device on the combine. And then we had elaborate post-harvest quality assurance. That qualified 97% of our data. So this data set is not only larger, this data set is head and shoulders better than anything else out there because nobody else that I'm aware of has done what we did. What we did cost $80 million. So no one else would spend the $80 million. I mean, we're trying to obviously translate that $80 million into products and services that make decision-making better. If we're successful in doing that, that'll be a good $80 million spent. Nobody else chose to do that. So we made the bet on that, spent the money, did it right, and have produced a data set that is extraordinarily differentiated. That's why I say to you, somebody else says, well, here's my, here's my yield file. I, I wouldn't regard it at all. I'd start right back and say, okay, tell me what you did. Tell me about your calibration process. Tell me if you monitored, tell me how you validated this. How do you know this is good stuff? And I've yet to have anyone who's been able to satisfy me with that because we concluded you couldn't do that at the level we require without taking the steps we took. And I just don't see people doing it. I hope they will. It's really, it's really important to us. I don't mean this in some sort of condemnation context. It's a challenge, but it's important to agriculture that people do that because if we have a really pristine data set here and we wanna help you understand how you're doing, we need good data from you as well. We need good data to compare to good data to make good decisions. And so it's really important that we find ways to improve the quality of the data that goes into these decisions. And I would challenge you, if you have an agronomist working for you, or you have someone looking at all these files for you and making representations and recommendations, I'd drill them. I'd really want to understand they should be doing it with you. They should say, look, we really shouldn't be using this for decision-making unless you do the following things, because otherwise we're gonna get data back that's incomplete and inaccurate. We not only collected data, yield data, we collected every bit of information we could get from the USDA, university studies, all kinds of places to understand the underlying growing conditions. You know, we were into to fields that are on the east side of hills at certain elevations, that blocked the sun at certain points of the day and the effect that would have uh, on yield, good soil surrounded by good soil, surrounded by bad soil. I mean, there's an amazing amount of complexity that went into determining the actual growing conditions. Suffice it to say, we spent the time and we think we did that right. So going forward, we're trying to position ourselves to make an even greater contribution. So we've partnered with the first data cooperative, GISC. But the idea is to create a farmer-owned, farmer-governed data cooperative place. You can store your data, have your data managed, and have your data in a position where it can be considered in formulating solutions for you through Main Street data. So we're the data science partner for GISC. GISC also has a number of their own products that I think are really attractive. I've developed an ag hub but it's a, it's a, I used the term collaboration before. 
It's an opportunity to create a collaboration platform among farmers so that we can get at questions like, like what seed variety actually does work best under various growing conditions? No one has that data now, in my view. You know, you know I've, I've looked, I've not seen a process yet. I've seen a lot of efforts at doing it in a general sort of way, getting some kind of directional orientation, farmers exchanging data, but not data science-based, not discipline, not controlled. But if we could get farmers to actually cooperate in the context of a data cooperative, we could acquire that data and we could answer those questions. We could control for the growing circumstances so we could isolate the factor we were trying to evaluate and actually make a determination. So I would encourage you to think about GISE. Think about the idea of an independent data cooperative where you could do that sort of thing so new innovations, because we know the relationship between yield and weather at this highly granular level from 1991 forward. So that's the time frame we're dealing with. We have detailed weather at this level going back to 1991, and we have detailed yield information beginning in 2010 we know the relationships and so we can forecast. We can forecast not just at a national level, which we in fact do, we can forecast at a regional level, county level. We can forecast at your farm level. That's, this is an example of that. Weather yield is a new product that we're, we are promoting to cooperatives to start with. Some of the cooperatives have indicated they will promote this to their farmers because there's all kinds of uses for this. But this is a way of identifying a point on a map and saying, I want a hyper-local weather forecast, yield forecast for the next 30 days, 60 days, whatever, within 30 mile radius of this point. So it could be a cooperative elevator, for instance, or it could be your farm. You could have an interest in some other uh, geographic area around you and identify that. And in February, we're translating this to an on-demand do-it-yourself tool. So if you subscribe, you can actually go to a computer, put your own point on the map, specify your own radius by drawing a circle or any kind of shape. Since we have this data at 150 square feet, we can populate it any way you want to populate it and give you a detailed weather forecast that can be used for agronomic purposes, can be used for buying and selling purposes, could be used for grain marketing purposes, there are all kinds of use cases. Market Vision is a product we will have out in the next 30 days. It is our detailed grain marketing tool. We think this is as good as the big guys use. It's not opinion-based. It's not people reading the Wall Street Journal and all kinds of other forecasts. So some of that goes into looking at the fundamentals to coming down to global fair value. So taking into account problems in China, weather in South America, that sort of thing. But ultimately, this is quantitative. This is not someone's opinion. This is giving you insight into when and how much you should sell based upon hyperlocal weather forecast, the effect that will have on yield, the creation of supply in local areas. What we're looking for is a discontinuity between local prices from your elevators or ethanol plants or wherever, and what we know is gonna happen. It's missed all the time. People are incorporated into their prices, expectations in terms of supply that are wrong because they don't have a tool to determine that. This is a way of getting ahead of that, understanding better what the supply is going to be so you can make more intelligent grain marketing decisions. This is the tool I referred to before, 
when we measured Grundy County, Iowa against what happened in Grundy County, Iowa, would have produced $45 an acre improvement. And this is the Main Street data validator. I've talked a lot about this concept, but what we're doing is we are comparing your farm based upon all the circumstances that affect growing, weather, soil type, the 56 variables I referred to, to others who are farming under comparable conditions. We'll give that to you for one year. We'll give that to you for three years plus this year. Next year, you can pick $2.50 an acre for the five years, um, dollar an acre for the one year, uh, and a money-back guarantee. I, mean, I looked at this and said, anyone giving a money-back guarantee in ag? No, anyone know one? I'm, I'm, anyone know a money-back guarantee? So I said, we're so confident of this and we'd like people to adopt this that, fine, if people decide they didn't get value out of this at the end of a year, tell us. We'll, we'll, we'll want to talk to them about why, but there won't be any question about giving them their money back. So this is something that we're trying to, to utilize to get people to really pay attention at the level of detail in the context of competitiveness, context of taking weather out of the equation, doing this in a highly disciplined way. So we're so confident that this will be a value that if you want your money back, we'll give your money back. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks to Ron LeMay for sharing his perspective on the importance of precision in agronomic data. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.